We continue today in our Asking for a Friend sermon series, and today's topic is one that carries with it particular interest among many. It's a topic that's been discussed and debated by the church, quite likely since the time of the apostles. We received a lot of questions about various aspects of the doctrine of baptism when we were collecting questions at the beginning of this series. And so we've simply titled the question today, Baptism! Exclamation point, question mark. I thought that best summarized the varied questions that you all had. Before we get too deep, I think it's important for us to acknowledge a couple of things. And the first is this. Let's acknowledge together that this has been a long-standing discussion and even debate between competent biblical scholars who have agreed to disagree on the doctrine. Throughout the history of the church, there have been pastors and scholars and theologians who all confess a very high view of the scriptures, who are far smarter than you and I, who have held any number of varying positions on baptism. And so what that does is it commands a certain level of humility when we approach a subject like this. The second thing that I want us to acknowledge this morning is the reason that this particular doctrine has caused lines to be drawn in ways that other doctrines have not. And that's simply because this is a type of doctrine that requires people to take a position. It has to play out in a tangible way. In other words, parents will either baptize their children or they will withhold baptism from their children. Pastors will either take a position that the amount of water that's used matters or that the amount of water that's used doesn't matter. This doctrine differs, for example, from communion that we will share in together at the end of the service in some significant ways. Uh, Scripture is pretty clear that in the Lord's Supper we receive something from the Lord. That God gives us his son, Jesus, and all that he accomplished for us. That we receive the promises of God as we partake in the sacrament together. But the interesting thing about communion is you can disagree with my understanding of what actually happens during communion without there being any practical, tangible difference in your practice. Baptism is different in that regard. If your view of baptism is different from mine, there will be tangible, visible differences. And so part of the reason that this particular doctrine has caused lines to be drawn is that every congregation has to take a position. As our reading, our understanding of Scripture, uh, as we process those passages together, will ultimately inform that position. But while every church must take a position, it doesn't mean that there isn't room within the congregation for a variety of views. There are many in our church family who hold a position that varies to one degree or another from the official position that we hold and confess as a congregation in our statement of faith. And so, of course, the focus of the congregation is on unity, at least first, And the focus of the individual Christian should be on unity. I've often said that for me, conversations about baptism are best had over a cup of coffee. 
in a spirit of unity. That's how I almost always approach the topic. And so with those two acknowledgments in mind, let's turn to God's word, God's holy, inspired, inerrant word. And we're going to begin this morning first in Paul's letter to the Romans. And we'll use that as our sort of foundational text today. And then we will explore a number of other places in scripture as well. I will try to have every scripture reference on the screen, at least the reference. Uh, So for you note takers, you can jot those references down as we work our way through today. So I would invite you to stand at this time as I read from Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 1. This is God's word to us. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. God, your word is true. And so we ask that you would speak to us today. Give us faith to believe all that you have said. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There are many questions that surround the doctrine of holy baptism. From questions of the proper age, comprehension level, or spiritual depth of the one to be baptized, to questions of how much water is required, how wet the baptized person needs to get, to other questions of what baptism actually does, what it accomplishes, what its purpose is. What I've come to realize is that almost all of those questions are downstream of one much more significant question that determines the course of our processing and understanding of baptism. And so today we're going to address that one foundational question and then uh, after that a series of related questions that I believe flow from it. And so the foundational question to consider today, the question that lies at the heart of most disagreements regarding baptism is this. Is baptism something that we do for God or something that God does for us? There's perhaps no question that is more central to our understanding of the doctrine of baptism than this one. It determines the course that we take in reading all of the other passages about baptism. Is baptism primarily something that we are doing for God, or is baptism something that God does for us? Or we might think of it this way, is baptism an act? an offering, a ritual, an ordinance that we perform for God? Or is it a means through which God gives to us? Who is the active party in baptism? 
how you process this question will determine your understanding of baptism. But where do we start? Maybe we should start where the conversation of baptism starts in the New Testament. In Matthew chapter 3, John the baptizer is doing his thing. And listen to what he says. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And then Matthew records for us that Jesus shows up at the Jordan River and asks John to baptize him. And John tries to convince him otherwise, but Jesus insists. And when he is baptized, sure enough, the Spirit of God descends like a dove upon Jesus. And from that moment onward, baptism is no longer, just as John foretold, baptism is no longer merely a baptism of repentance like John's was. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus pronounces his words of commission, his instructions for all who would follow him. In Matthew chapter 28, he, he says this, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. In other words, Jesus says that our task is to go and make disciples of all nations. And how is that disciple-making work accomplished? Jesus gives us two specific ways. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey. But it's not just any baptism. Did you hear what Jesus says? Baptizing them in what? In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. It's not just a baptism of repentance like we heard about from John. The Apostle Paul would use the phrase, baptized into Christ. The Apostle Peter used the phrase, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. So here's what we've seen so far. Christian baptism is not merely an act of repentance, as John's baptism was, but we are being baptized into the name of the triune God, into the name of Christ, or as Paul says, baptized into Christ himself. We, we aren't baptized merely with a baptism of repentance, but a baptism into Christ. Here's why this point is so important. It might be best expressed by the words of Peter in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, Peter is preaching at Pentecost, and he says this, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and your children and all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Peter is preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, crucified for sinners, and the people are cut to the heart. And their response is, what should we do? And what is Peter's response? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for 
the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter calls them to repent and to be baptized. And he says two things will happen. Your sins will be forgiven and you will receive the Holy Spirit. Now let me ask you, as you think about what Peter says here, as Peter presents this understanding for us, who is the one doing the work? Who is the one pouring out the gifts? Is baptism merely a symbolic human act, or is God doing something and giving something in baptism? And I would say that in baptism, God is giving the forgiveness of sins. He is delivering the Holy Spirit, just as the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus in his baptism. Another passage that might be helpful for us is Acts chapter 22. It's the account of Paul's conversion. As we read the description of Paul's conversion, uh, hear these words from Acts chapter 22, verse 16. It says this, And now what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash away your sins. I think we would all agree that none of us have the power to wash away sin. And so it is in holy baptism that Paul's sins according to Acts, are washed away. Of course, many will try to turn that into a metaphor. They'll say baptism doesn't really wash away our sins. People will say, certainly Peter didn't mean to be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. And in Acts, when Luke records those words, he didn't really mean that baptism will actually wash away sin. Peter and John didn't really mean that in baptism we receive the Holy Spirit. I have become convinced by the plain reading of Holy Scripture that baptism isn't merely symbolic. That God is the one who is at work in baptism. That baptism is something that God does for us, not primarily something that we do for God. In case you're not convinced, let's look at our sermon text for today. Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 3, says this, Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might live a new life. Listen to Paul's words. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death. We need not allegorize these words or treat them as merely symbolic. Paul actually, literally said that when you were baptized, you were buried with Christ. That should be celebrated, not written off. And then listen to this. It gets better in verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his through baptism, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. Paul says in baptism, you were united with Christ's death. You were buried with him in baptism. And there's good news if you have been united with him in a death like his, you will certainly 
also be united with him in a resurrection like his. That's incredible. That should cause us to celebrate. That's an amazing promise from God. Scripture takes the promise of God to us in baptism. and says it's not just the cleansing of sin. It's not just the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's also the promise of a future bodily resurrection where everything that has gone wrong will be undone. That's the promise of God to us. Two more verses that I want to share with you briefly, and I would encourage you to take some time to process these more. The first is from Galatians chapter 3, where Paul says that all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. So in our baptism, we are clothed with Christ. This, of course, is the imagery of the prodigal son who has his father's robe placed over him, the righteousness of Christ placed over top of us. And the second passage that I would bring to your attention today is from 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21. Peter is talking about Noah, and listen to what he says. He says, this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter says that in the waters, in Noah's day, you are to see the symbol of our own baptism that now saves us. And he doubles down on that and answers the question of how water saves us. And it's exactly what Paul said in Romans 6, that our baptism isn't just washing, but that it actually unites us with Christ first in his death. And even more significantly in the promise of resurrection. These are the promises that God has given us in baptism. These aren't my words. This is God's word. Is baptism something that we do for God? Or something that God has done for us? I can't wash away my own sin. I can't forgive sin. I can't give myself the Holy Spirit. I can't bury myself with Christ and give myself the promise of future resurrection. I can't clothe myself with Christ. I can't save myself. And so if the scriptures are to be consistent, we must must say that all of these things that baptism does are done by God and not by us. Baptism is not something that I do for God, but something that God has done for me. The focus is on the promise of God. Not the amount of water, not the location, not the person administering it. God is the one who is at work in baptism. It's him doing the promising and the washing and the saving and the Holy Spirit imparting. This is the foundational question regarding baptism. But of course, there are many other related questions as well that flow out of that larger question. And so let's address several of those this morning. The first one is this. If baptism does all of these things, then what's the role of faith? That's a great question. And I would say this, the response to this question is simply that you cannot separate faith from baptism. There is no 
proper and biblical understanding of baptism apart from faith. We'll talk about children more in just a moment, but it's, it's super important to understand that every single time we talk about baptism, we are doing so as directly connected to faith. But there's one nuance that's important, and that's the biblical teaching that faith comes not from within your heart or your will or your intellect, but that faith comes from God. Namely, from the word of God, from the gospel. Neither the scriptures nor sound doctrine teach baptism apart from faith. In fact, I would say that baptism is part of how faith is created and nurtured within us from the word of God. In John chapter 3, Jesus says this, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and spirit. Paul said something similar in Titus chapter 3, verse 5. He said, He saved us not because of the righteous things that we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us, how? Through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Of course, there is no washing there is no water known to the new testament believers other than the waters and the washing of baptism in the name of the triune god we are saved by god's grace alone through faith alone in christ alone and baptism is simply the means the method the vehicle that god uses to deliver faith to deliver the holy spirit to wash away sin and to promise future resurrection to us. So what is the role of faith? It is inseparable from any conversation about salvation or baptism or forgiveness or eternal life or resurrection. The next question that we often hear is this, who should be baptized? And this is where a lot of the disagreement throughout the history of the church has manifested. And of course, this is where people feel the controversy in baptism. Is baptism only for those who have a conscious and expressible faith in Jesus Christ? Or is baptism also for the developmentally disabled, for our children, and even infants? There are quite often three mistakes that I encounter people making that I would humbly label false conclusions regarding this question of who should be baptized. Mistake number one that I often see is the over-intellectualizing of faith. I mention this often during our baptism services, but, but the way that most evangelical Christians talk about faith is quite different from the way that the scriptures talk about faith, from the way that Jesus taught about faith. God's covenant with Abraham, which I'll talk about more in a moment, seemed to assume that children were believing members of the kingdom of God. They were culpable for their sin. From infancy, they needed to receive the sign and the seal of God's love, God's promises to them in covenant community. David spoke of this perhaps most clearly when he said in Psalm 51 that he was sinful from conception, but that God was at work imparting to him 
wisdom in the womb before he was born. And then, of course, there's Psalm 22, which is perhaps the psalm with the most significance in the New Testament, because it was the psalm that Jesus quoted from the cross. David confesses this in Psalm 22. He says, Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. So the Old Testament impresses on us that from conception we are in need of God's grace and God's promises and also that God is imparting wisdom and and causing even unborn children and nursing babies to quote David to trust in him. And then we move on to the New Testament and we find that that same understanding continues. The very first human person to acknowledge and respond to the yet unborn Savior was John leaping in the womb of his mother. In Matthew chapter 18, when the disciples are arguing over which of them was the greatest, Jesus calls a little child into their midst and he says, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And in verse 6, just to clear up any confusion or any controversy or any arguments that the church would have millennia later, Jesus makes it clear that these little children to whom he is referring believe in him, have faith in him. In Luke chapter 18, we have a little different scenario. People are bringing babies, Luke tells us, to Jesus. And listen to what Jesus says. We find in Luke chapter 18, verse 15, It says this, when the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. But Jesus called the children to him and said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom like a little child will never enter it. And so the teaching of both the Old and the New Testaments is that Saving faith, kingdom faith, is not a matter of human intellect or maturity or reason, but it's a work of God in which he brings even children in the womb to trust in him, even nursing children to believe in him. True faith, according to Jesus, is is that faith which babies have when they just receive what he freely gives. To over-intellectualize faith is to tell Jesus that he is wrong. To, like the disciples, assume that an adult, conscious, reasoned faith is somehow superior to the pure, simple faith of an infant when Jesus says and teaches the opposite. Can children believe in Jesus? Can children have faith? Can children trust in God? Both the Old Testament and Jesus himself say, yes, because we don't understand it doesn't mean that it's not true. It's true because Jesus said it. Second mistake that I often see people make is this, and that's a failure to view baptism in its theological context with its connection to the Old Testament or the Old Covenant. Several scripture passages up on the screen that uh, speak to this, and I will share 
uh, just a couple with you this morning. One of the comments that is made often, that I've heard often, is that we don't see uh, any infant baptisms in Scripture. I would agree that we don't see any explicit examples of believing parents bringing their children to be baptized. But, but the problem is, we don't see any examples of believing parents doing anything. The closest thing that we have is the couple of times that we see that someone who came to faith had their whole household baptized. The most obvious example is the Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16. He comes to faith in Christ and verse 33 says, Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. Now the plainest reading of this seems to be that all his household means what it says, all. But some would argue that when Luke wrote all in Acts 16, he didn't mean all. I'm really okay reading Acts 16 just as Luke wrote it, believing that word all, that all his household were baptized. And that probably included children. Luke could have been very specific here. Luke is a very specific guy. He could have been very specific. He could have said all the adults in the household or all, all the people of the household except the children, but he didn't say that. And so I would encourage you to think of it this way. If I were to stand up here this morning and say all of my household had the stomach flu over the weekend, none of you would assume that I just meant Angela and I, right? You would all assume that I meant what I said, that all of my household had the stomach flu. And so why would we approach Acts 16 any differently unless we have to, unless we have an agenda to do so? But let's take a moment to consider what the average New Testament believer would have concluded about whether children born to believing parents were to be baptized. It seems logical that their starting point would be with what God had done previously. So what had God done previously for believing families? Whatever we believe about Christian baptism, we would all agree that it is initiatory. It is the rite or the act or the ordinance or the sacrament by which one is brought into the true faith. Whether you believe that baptism has great significance and is God's gift or whether you believe that it is merely symbol, we can all agree that it is initiatory. And so how has God worked in the past? What would the average everyday New Testament believer have had as the backdrop, as the context for their understanding of God's initiation, initiatory work in the Old Covenant. Of course, we know that it was through circumcision that people were counted among the people of God in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament. Circumcision was the sign and the seal that the person and their family were part of God's people. And so when God instituted this sign of circumcision among Abraham and his people in Genesis chapter 17, all males had to be circumcised. And any man who refused, scripture tells us, was to be cut off from the people of God for breaking the covenant. So that was the first generation, right? Abraham receives this covenant instruction from God and all the adult males among him were circumcised. But what about the second generation? The second generation were to be circumcised not when they could decide for themselves if they wanted to believe in God, not when they had grown and could reason and have a conscious adult faith in Yahweh, 
No, they were circumcised at eight days of age. They were given the sign of the covenant of God's promises to their people and welcomed into the family of God at eight days old. And if they weren't, they were cut off from God's people. They were to be sent out. And so we get to the New Testament and God does something amazing. In the New Testament, there is a new covenant and there is a new sign, a new rite of initiation, a new mark and seal that would identify the people and the family of God. And this new seal wasn't just this time for males, it was for all people. This new covenant sign was the means by which one would be made a Christian, by which one would be counted among the covenant people of God. And just in case we doubt that circumcision would have been the reference point for those New Testament believers when they thought about the backstory of God's work and initiation into his kingdom, Paul makes it clear for us in Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, Paul says this, In Christ you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off, that's circumcision, when? When you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. What does Paul say here? He says, you remember circumcision? In your baptism, you received a true and better circumcision. A circumcision not done by human beings, but by God. A circumcision that buried you with Jesus has given you true life, and promises you the hope of resurrection. And so Paul understands baptism to be the new and better circumcision. If you don't think of baptism within the context of the full counsel and teaching of God's word, you might be quick to begin thinking that it's something that it's not. But when we start with Abraham, and we see God's covenant relationship with his people, And when we view that as the backstory, as the context, as the background into which baptism is given, and when we follow Paul's teaching about the connection between baptism and circumcision, it becomes clear how the average, everyday, first century Jew would have processed this new rite. Having come to faith in Christ and seeing baptism as the new and better circumcision, they would have been eager to not only themselves be baptized, but to bring their children to the water of of baptism to receive the promises of God. We must view baptism in its theological context with its connections to the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. And then there's one final common mistake that I want to mention that I often see when people are thinking about who should be baptized, and that's the third one, reading through the lens of abuse or misuse of the doctrine of baptism. Many people will look at abuse or misuse that they've seen in various churches and Christian traditions and as they approach the topic of baptism and and say, "I, I don't know what I believe, but I don't want anything to do with that. But as people of the word, we must always do whatever we can to remove every cultural, every 
experiential lens that we look through when it comes to God's word. We must distance ourselves from whatever feelings we have, immerse ourselves in the first century context, and then we can begin to read the text properly and not through the lens of whatever I like or appreciate or whatever abuses I've seen in the past. This is an important practice with scripture reading in general, to try to recognize those lenses, those biases that we have, not just when it comes to baptism, but it's a common mistake here. This often surfaces in the teaching that you see in some churches that so long as you were baptized, it doesn't matter how you lived your life. There are churches that teach that, that you can sin all you want. It doesn't matter what you do in life. But that's the question that was at the source of our scripture text for today in Romans chapter 6. Remember how that text began. Paul asked a question. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? If God has poured out his grace abundantly for sinners, should we just live our lives however we want because grace is always going to be there? And how does he answer that question? He says, by no means. We are those who have died to sin. And then where does he point them in his answer to this question? He points them to the promise made in baptism. Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Of course you're not just going to keep sinning because God's grace is always going to be there. That would make no sense if you understand the promise of God to you in baptism. When confronted with the question of whether those who have received the promises of God should just go on sinning because of those promises, Paul actually points them to their baptism. He says, no, in your baptism you were baptized into Christ's death. Your sin nature was crucified with Christ. And so simply because some treat baptism as the thing to which they look to try to prove salvation of those who have rejected Christ their entire lives. We don't throw it out because of abuse. We, we take Paul's advice. We look to it for assurance of what God has done for us. Who should be baptized? Scripture says anyone who by faith will receive what God offers whether the infant or the new convert, God offers his gifts to all those who will receive. The final question for us to consider this morning is this. Is baptism required for salvation? I want to make clear that I'm not talking about the unique scenario where an infant dies. I'm not, I'm not talking about those Unique scenarios, I'm saying that from what God has said, is baptism essential? Is it required? And so with any question like this, the best thing to do is for us just to say what Scripture says. And so I want you to listen to what Scripture has said. Just hear these words. He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And now what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash away your sins. This water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. The New Testament doesn't conceive of true salvation apart from Christian baptism. And so if you have not been baptized today, I ask you the question from Acts 16, what are you waiting for? Be baptized and wash away your sins. We haven't answered every question related to baptism, but Lord willing, we've received a biblical framework by which we can understand the doctrine. And so let's end where we started, that in baptism, God is the one who does the work. And in your baptism, he gave you faith, he washed you, he forgave your sin, he filled you with the Holy Spirit, he buried you with Christ, he raised you to walk in new life, and he has given you the promise of resurrection. Scripture teaches that all of those things are yours, delivered to you as simple water is paired together with the living and enduring word and promise of God. And in those promises, we should take great comfort and assurance and hope. Because of your baptism, you are his. You belong to him. It's his mark on you. And there is no greater joy. Let's pray. Gracious God, you have abundantly poured out your grace to us. You have gifted us faith to believe, believe that you have really given all that you have promised. But we thank you that you work through simple, tangible, everyday means to accomplish your incredible work. And we thank you for the, the Lord's Supper to which we will turn our attention in just a couple of moments. And as we receive your promises, may we live with the assurance that our sins are forgiven and that we belong to you. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.